Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. This month, I'm happy to welcome Dan Morin, author of the Galactic Cold War series of sci-fi espionage capers. I love the way you say that on your website, sci-fi espionage capers, including the Aleph Extraction and the Bayern Agenda, as well as the Caledonian Gambit. Dan, thank you very much for joining us for the second episode of Right Now with Scrivener. Thank you so much for having me. Dan and I have sort of floated along parallel lines for many years. You used to be on staff at Macworld. Mm -hmm. I was a senior contributor to Macworld for many years. You are also a prolific tech writer, and you participate in about 11 podcasts. <laughs> More than I can keep track of these days. It's what eats up a lot of my schedule. It's about like the one thing I have to like have a scheduled time to show up for. Yeah, all the rest of the writing you can do whenever you want. And that's one of the great things about being a writer, isn't it? Yeah, the flexibility is great, but it's nice to have something to put a peg in your day there and just be like, oh, I got to get dressed, you know, to go do this show at, at noon. I don't have to get dressed. It's a podcast, but I feel like I have to get dressed. So you describe your books as sci-fi espionage capers. Tell me a little bit about why sci-fi espionage. Uh, I think it's one of those two great tastes that taste great together things that really appeal to me. <laughs> those are two of my favorite genres. Uh, I love espionage novels, everything from, you know, John le Carré to James Bond, uh, you know, pretty much anything that does with spies. I've always been a big fan of both books, movies, etc. And then sci-fi is something I grew up steeped in. So, you know, I grew up with Star Wars, and Star Trek, and I'm an avid watcher of all sorts of science fiction shows, reader of science fiction books. And I love, I found a few over the years that sort of crossed those genres, but there were never enough for me. And so when it came time to actually like sit down and work on something that I was really excited, I was like, oh, I want to write something that I would love to read. And for me, that was crossing those two genres, because I think it's, there's a real fertile ground there for having this sort of, you know, plot driven espionage action that's set in a world that's like our own, but, you know, maybe projected forward a few hundred years. I noticed that the titles remind me of some of those classic espionage novels. There's no, <laughs> there's no accident there, is there? Yeah, the something something, right? The, the adjective noun, as I like to call it. Uh, it's funny because originally my first book, The Caledonian Gambit, I had pitched under a variety of different titles, and I remember writing uh, a long list of title suggestions to my agent because the one that I was the working title, he didn't like it. And he's like, no, no, we got to change it before we send it out. And so I wrote a bunch. And then the one I remember the Caledonian Gambit was on the list as like, oh, this is like my Robert Ludlum title, <laughs> like, you know, the born, the born supremacy, etc. And so I was like, well, all right, that's fine. And then I don't know, but it just sort of stuck. You know, when I moved into doing the next book, even though I ended up switching publishers, the, the formula certainly, you know, got lodged in there and I just continued. And it's it's nice because it does remove some of the uh, struggles with coming up with a new title every time. You're like, oh, I just got to I got to fit in that same template. The adjective <laughs> noun, it should be no problem. The thing is, when you look at the books, I, I kind of have the feeling that the Aleph extraction must be the first one, the Byron agenda, the second one, <laughs> and the Caledonia again, but the third one, kind of like Sue Grafton's novel. Right, but it's actually right. opposite. Yeah, and then people were wondering about, like, oh, if there's another one, will it start with Z? Are you going backwards? And I'm like, oh, well, man. Well, shouldn't that's... the next one start with Z, <laughs> the zebra affair or something? Oh, uh, it's going to, it's probably, if it, if it happens, it's probably going to throw everybody for a loop. They're all going to be upset that I didn't finish the pattern or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the Zephyr event. I can't Ooh, think of any good. words with uh, Z. Yeah, that's the trouble. Z, Zephyr's a good one. Z locks you in a bit there. Yeah. Sci-fi espionage capers, but they're also space operas. Yeah, I mean, I like something that happens on a big stage, a big galactic stage. And I think that's, again, one place where 
espionage and sci-fi are natural partners because both of them have these expansive worlds, right? My favorite sci-fi novels are Cold War sci-fi novels, and you have these things that unfold at like this, you know, in a Cold War novel at a global level, right? Like there are nation states involved, but it like ultimately gets distilled down to a small set of character interactions with these huge ramifications. And so to me, that's a natural translation when you're talking about sci-fi is like, well, you have these now instead of just one planet, you have dozens of planets and you have more superpowers and all this stuff is still eventually boils down to people and to people in small interactions but it has these ripple effects that can go throughout the entire galaxy and i think that is is just something they're very simpatico in that way in our first episode of the podcast we had peter robinson who writes mystery novels and mystery novels are i guess you could say they're reductive they're kind of like a funnel right you start with a lot of possibilities and they narrow down whereas with what you're writing you have all these possibilities like you're saying if you need a new planet you just add a new planet if you need a few more characters you just add them and it's the exact opposite of a mystery isn't it yeah a mystery requires a lot of discipline i think and i will say almost every book i write even when you're dealing in espionage like mystery is an element of that there's always things that are unknown that your characters are trying to figure out and you want to have deal with some of the same sort of economy, right? Because you don't want to just sort of pull in something at the 11th hour and be like, oh, this thing over here that you've never heard about has never been mentioned anywhere in the books. And that's the answer to everything. Um, you still got to deal with sort of the strictures of it. And I, you know, you say you just invent a new planet, which is true, you can. But like for me, I struggle so much sometimes with keeping continuity too, because people who have read the earlier books will be like, wait a second. Was that a thing that was mentioned two books ago? Like, did you or or? But no, you said two books ago this thing was over here, and you're like, oh no, I've totally messed up my entire carefully calculated world. So I think they have some things in common, but yeah, you're right that it, it is a little more flexible than something like a whodunit, where you have a very specific like way that things have to build. On the other hand, you're writing novels in the same world, so over time you are accreting all of these planets and characters and structures and history, and that does give you a pretty solid base to work with, right? Yeah, uh, the, the biggest problem is really keeping track of them. And for that, I, I eventually sort of created my own personal wiki. Um, I, you know, in a different world, maybe my fans would have been like rabid enough to create that for me. But uh, <laughs> since nobody else was doing the work, I ended up doing the work myself. And it was, you know, a way to just be able to look something up and be like, did I mention this in a previous book? Did I establish, you know, if I created this planet, did I establish a particular type of climate or the people there from there have a particular custom or, you know, characters like trying to remember sometimes, oh my God, what is this guy's eye color, you know? And because <laughs> if you say blue and two books ago, you said green then people will be like, wait a second, what's going on? So a lot of that for me is having a big expansive world, but being able to keep track of it. And so in some ways, the possibilities are endless because they bleed off the page, right? People imagine stuff that's outside of what you put on the page. And so even for me, when I'm writing, I have stuff that's not doesn't make it, right? Stuff that gets cut or stuff that gets revised. And so it's up to me sometimes whether or not like, oh, is that going to be something that comes back later that I might use in a later book, um, add this detail and if so, you know, should I keep track of that somewhere? Or sometimes the opposite, like, oh, well, I mentioned, oh, good, that never made it into that book. I can throw that out and reuse that for something else or change a detail here and there, and, and nobody knows but me. But the thing about world building is that you can actually build the world so you can create whatever you want. Again, you're not stuck with the real world that you're in where the detective and the, the murderer are, for instance. You can build a planet with a climate that you want, with people with certain well, creatures with certain characteristics, you can even make a Jar Jar Binks come in at one point. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think it's good and bad because it's great because it's an exercise of imagination and creativity. But the struggle sometimes is you can't as easily fall back on something that it's just like, oh, that's the work is already done for me. It's right. Like I, I deal in the Bear and, Agenda, uh, Bear and Jedi I deal a little bit with uh, economics. And so coming up with an economic system for a planet is like, wow, this is way easier when I just deal with like, I know how economics work in the main in, the, in our world, right? Or things that work in our world that you don't have to then have the intellectual labor of being like, oh, all right, I got to invent a whole new type of biome for this creature to explain why this creature exists and looks like a cat from <laughs> from Earth, but it's not a cat from Earth. So I, it's it's a tremendous exercise in creativity, but at the same time, it is exhausting because it means coming up with all of the details. I kind of have a feeling that you enjoy that part of it, though. <laughs> it is fun. I, I say it like having that canvas, that totally wide open canvas on which you can do whatever you want is great. Um, I think it is uh, at times, again, like when you're three books in and you're like, oh, man, did I did I already have to invent this thing or do I need to come up with something new here? It can sometimes be a little tiring, but it is still an amazing opportunity to sort of be able to create whatever you want in this huge wide open world. So do you have a writing routine because you're, well, you're doing three things. You're doing technical journalism, you're doing podcast, and you're doing your fiction writing. Have you carved out a space for your fiction writing, a particular place, time of day? What do you, how do you do it? Yeah, I, I try as much as possible to do my writing in the morning. I think that's when I do the best. So like when I get up in the morning, like it's, I try to avoid maybe getting too sucked into things like email or Twitter or what have you, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Uh, and then I usually carve out a couple hours before lunch to do most of my writing. And that's because you got the energy for it just in the morning. It's like you're fresh, you know, oftentimes I think even coming off sleep when your brain has been so creative, your subconscious, et cetera, you're like, oh, I'm sort of like in a space where I can think more creatively. And it works out very naturally for me. Uh, a lot of times my podcasts are sort of in, in midday or the afternoon. And so that's a nice breaking point for me where it's like, I'll get geared up for something that's a little more like uh, social, which is nice for me as a writer. I, I don't interact with a lot of people during the day. So being able to jump on a podcast and be like, all right, I get to chat with some people, warm my brain up a little bit. And then do, you know, some uh, some tech writing in the in like sort of the later in the afternoon where it's, you know, more of an analytical process. Um, and, and having that balance of a day is a, is a nice way to shift gears throughout the day. Yeah. In the afternoon, you don't have to create economic systems for planets. It's, <laughs> it's more describing reality, right? Yes, exactly. And, and it's, you know, especially when I do things like podcast editing in the afternoon, um, I find that that's something that is helpful to sort of totally shift gears because it's such a different kind of process that it lets me clear up my, you know, sort of clear the conscious part of my brain and let the subconscious start to go back to work again. So how how did you make the shift from journalist to novelist? I'm looking on your blog, a link in the show notes, you have an, a post, The Road to Published in June 2016. This is when you had just sold your first novel. And I noticed that you point out that the, you had started this years ago. The earliest chapter in my Scribner file dates from March 7, 2009. But at that time, you were still working full-time as a journalist, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's correct. So how did you make the shift from one to the other? Were, were you writing at night? Or well, I guess you were working from home, right? So you still could take the two hours in the morning and then work later on the journalism, couldn't you? Less so. Uh, most of that was done in, in on weekends, honestly. Like I would go out on Saturday and Sunday mornings to like a coffee shop and I'd sit down and I'd write for a few hours. Sometimes I would work in the evenings. I find myself often not very productive in the evenings, but 
every once in a while, if I can get into a groove, especially when I was doing things like National Novel Writing Month, which provides sort of that structure of like, okay, I got to get in a certain number of words per day. And that would let me have a framework where it's like, all right, it's it's night. And like, I usually don't do my best work at night, but I'm going to sort of sit down and bang out 1500 words or something. Um, but all the, you know, my first book was written predominantly on weekends around my full-time job, uh, because even though I was working from home, I was one of the primary East Coast people uh, at, at Macworld, which was predominantly West Coast based. So if stuff broke early in the morning, if there was a press release at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, it's like, well, I'm off and running for the day, basically. I don't have a break now. I've already sort of geared up for writing for work, and I am just not going to be able to shift gears back to doing something more creative. You've been very transparent about your finances, and you've written a couple articles summing up your finances for the year. Again, Dan's blog has a lot of interesting things. In 2020, tech writing is 52%, podcast is 43%, fiction writing is 4%, and MISC is 1%. I'm really curious what the MISC is. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's little things like Amazon affiliate, uh, some merch sales, that kind of yeah. stuff, but very, very few things in there. I think it's really good that you are so transparent, and on Twitter, you talk about this a lot. And it's, it's good for writers to understand what this means about what the economics of writing is. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, especially people who are interested in becoming writers, don't know much about how the system works. Certainly, it was a long time for me before I really understood. You, you think, oh, you, you, buy, you, know, you write a book, a book goes on sale, you get paid when people buy the book. And like, it's true, but there's a whole bunch of asterisks that go into that. And so for me, I was inspired a lot by um, people like uh, John Scalzi and Cameron Hurley and Jim Hines, who all have done posts like these talking about their, their income from writing. And for me, especially as someone who is still fairly new to writing and is certainly not, as you can demonstrate by those percentages, not making their full living <laughs> off of it, it is instructive, I think, for people coming into the, the, the industry to sort of be able to look at that and say, what is a reasonable expectation? And it varies, right? This is the other thing that's huge. It's interesting because I think so many, because writers are people who work alone and because they're people who deal with these publishers and have their contracts, there's not a lot of information sharing between even people who are like peers in the industry sometimes. Like you might have some like over, a, you know, a drink at a bar or privately with one-on-one -on -one or something, but it's, I think, not a very transparent process for a lot of people. And there's been a lot of uh, discussion about this even more recently with uh, like the dis disparities between people of color sort of getting, uh, you know, book deals and stuff like that. How does that stack up? Um, and I think it's important to be able to talk about these things and not sort of, you know, have money as a taboo issue, because I think it will help all writers, you know, understand, like, what is the structure of this? What should I be expecting? Can I negotiate more? Um, and, you know, be able to have a conversation about it. I find it interesting that a lot of the writers who talk about this are science fiction writers. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I, I certainly maybe it's because I'm most plugged into that community and those are the ones that I'm really aware of. But um, yeah, I think it's it also is because it is kind of a tight knit community at the end of the day. It's one that has not only do we have, you know, our trade organization, the Science Fiction Writers of America, but also people are very friendly. They're very engaged online. You know, the I think the the online community predating even, you know, social networks and stuff like that. Um, I think that helps in having a place where people are willing to talk about it a, a lot more. And I think it's also because. 
I won't say the money is is like much, you know, magnitude smaller than maybe like literary fiction or something like that. I think there's a wide range in both, but I think that there is a more um, I don't know, more of a template or more of just a like commonalities in the science fiction community. It might also have something to do with the fact that in science fiction, a lot of writers write both short stories and novels. Hmm. So there are multiple publishing paths. Yeah, I mean, that could certainly be part of it. And, and certainly there's a lot of places where the short story stuff, I think, is more transparent because usually it's it's like when we're working as a journalist, like there's sort of upfront prices for what things cost. Like if it's, you know, this month per word or we pay this much for stories between this much and this much words, you know, I think I think there's probably a little bit more flexibility in there. And there is some bouncing back and forth for a lot of people between short and long fiction. OK, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener to write your novels. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing, and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order, in sections as large or small as you like, and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So let's talk about how you use Scrivener. As, as I mentioned earlier, you've got this blog post where you talk about the first file of your first published book was from 2009. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to the Scrivener developer, and I looked back at when I first bought Scrivener. It was January 21, 2007, the day after it was first released. Were you using it back then? Because I remember I'd been using it as a public beta before it was officially released. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm looking back to see if I can remember. It looks like my first time when I actually bought it was uh, back in 2009. So July in 2009, I think. And at that point, it's possible I you know, sort of downloaded and tried it out as we often ended up trying out a lot of different software in those days. Um, but I think that was, you know, guessing by that, that's right around the time that I was working on what eventually became my first book. So I think that was probably when I was like, all right, I'm going to get serious about this. I probably downloaded it and, you know, used the trial and was like, all right, I'm going to keep going with this. And at that point, I bought it and I was like, <laughs> kind of never looked back. So, yeah, over a decade of using Scrivener pretty regularly since that date. So how do you use it when you're building a novel? Does each novel have a project? Do you have a big project for all your research or your world building? What's your strategy? I mainly use, so I have a different project for every book. Um, and I've only recently started to get better about sort of creating like, you know, a sort of a template for that so I can reuse the same thing because I tend to have, you know, like all writers, I have my settings that I like. I want my font set up just so and I want my you know, margins and my, uh, you know, outliner view and all of this in just like a very specific uh, size and what have you. So um, I tend to then use mostly for the writing. And then I have like my research section where a lot of what goes and ends up going in there is more about, say, 
you know, stuff that gets cut. Like, I'm, I'll remove things and be like, oh, but I want to save this for later because I just in case this comes useful or I'm, I'm a pack rat as a writer. Like, I always like, what if this is the best <laughs> sentence I've ever written and I've deleted it, you know? <laughs> so I put it in a little file somewhere else where I have like all my, my lists of cuts that I've taken out. I just want to mention, you talk about creating your own template. We have an article on the Scrivener blog called Create Custom Templates for Your Scrivener Projects. And I'll link to that in the show notes. So do you use outlining? Do you use the corkboard? or do you just write? I tend to just write. I have used the corkboard in the past, especially when I'm dealing with things that are complex, like plot uh, organizational stuff, where it's cases where it's like, oh man, does this thing have to happen first? Does this have to happen first? And it is a great way to get a bird's eye view, which I think is really handy because like otherwise you're paging through document after document going like, oh God, is this the chapter where this happens or is that three chapters ago? So being able to have like a quick way to look at an overview of everything that's going on and be like, oh yeah, okay, this makes sense. I like this happens in this chapter and then five chapters later, this next thing happens. Okay. So I, I but I, when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, I really tend to just sort of sit down uh, open up like I have like one folder like in the Scrivener document that is the manuscript and then within there each file is like a chapter for me so I'll you know fire up a new file and that's chapter one and then I'll just write till I feel like that chapter is good. What about research now if you were looking into designing an economic system for a far off planet do you put this in your research folder in your project not that you've got anything about designing economic systems for planets <laughs> but you may have been looking up at a number of articles about economic yeah, I tend not to do that as much. I do write like sort of freeform stuff in my research files where it's like, all right, I'm just going to start spinning on an idea of like, all right, I'm trying to come up with what is this planet about? And I'll maybe just start writing a thing that's not like it's not a thing that's ever going to go into the book, but it helps me sort of structure ideas in the way that it's like, all right, let me tell a story about like how this works. Like, all right, they used to have this. Now they do this and this because because of this, like writing it out for me is often about writing it in like a like actual long four full sentences, et cetera, rather than like bullets or, or like little fractional notes or stuff like that. So I find that a handy place to use as a, like, I know there is a scratch pad, but I find it handy to use the research section as one of my scratch pads so I can have a bunch of different files and say, all right, this is where I was writing about this thing, or oh, this is where I was writing about space travel and how that works. What about characters and, and locations? Do you use those? I have in the past. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me is mainly because... I work in a series that I, when I wrote my first book, I filled out like I did a lot of that in Scrivener. So I had like character backgrounds and, you know, all the planet locations and stuff like that. And I would have notes. And then as the books in the series go on, I've tended to use it less because, as I mentioned in the first half, like I use a wiki to keep track of this. And some of it was just so I didn't have to constantly go back to an old Scrivener document, like for my first manuscript and be like, all right, now I got to open the Caledonian Gambit file and then scroll down and find the notes section. Um, you know, it was easier for me to offshore that in a place where I would always have access to it, no matter which document I was working on. Well, you could copy it from one of the old projects into the next project and then build on it from there. Uh, yeah, that, I could. That's true. I, I'm probably not doing, as with so many things in writing, I'm probably not doing it in the most efficient way I could. And you could also put the URL of your wiki into Scrivener and you could view the web page. That's true. Yeah, it is a good way to link into that. So I think there's a lot of options. And like a lot of it is so much how anybody's brain works, right? All of our all of our brains work a little differently when it comes to organizing things. And we all have different ways that we prefer to to look at information.
What devices do you use Scrivener on? Only Macs, or do you also use the iOS, iPadOS versions? So I predominantly use Macs, um, especially... So for whatever reason, even though I have it installed... I'll check I'm on the computer I'm on now, which is my iMac. Even though I do have it installed on my iMac, and I do, uh, I tend to write almost exclusively on my laptop. Uh, and that's been, I think, goes back a long way for me just because... I always was going out to write, like predominantly I would spend my time going to a coffee shop and writing there or uh, just being not at my desk because I found that was much more conducive to me. Writing is like if I'm writing at home, I would be writing in a chair or in uh, even on my couch at times. Um, and because like my desk is like where I go to do other work. And so it's like a place I delineate off. Um, and so for a long time, I was using uh, an 11 inch MacBook Air and I took it everywhere and I would write on it, you know, I was traveling or write it in coffee shops. Um, and so I recently upgraded to a 13 inch uh, M1 MacBook Air and I've been using that now. And that's great because the screen is so much bigger. Um, and so that tends to be like where I do, I would say probably 90% of my writing. Uh, there was a little while before I had upgraded to the new MacBook and the 11 inch Air was getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, I have an iPad Pro, an older one from 2017 that has just the smart keyboard cover. And so I would take that to the coffee shop because it was so light and so portable. And I would write there in uh, Scrivener on iOS. And so there were a few books that I worked on uh, a decent amount in Scrivener on iOS. Um, and then eventually, like, again, moving to the MacBook Air again, it's just been like, oh, well, I, you know, now I've got an even bigger screen. And, you know, obviously Scrivener on the Mac has a few more bells and whistles that I use that, that Scrivener on iOS doesn't always have. So I think that ended up being something that shifted me back to the Mac. And I, a part of it is just, I'm a predominantly a Mac first person. Like I like my iPad a lot, but I just tend to, you know, do much better thinking. And when it comes to my Mac. Sure. There's something to be said for that contextualization though, of separating your work on one computer and your fiction writing on a another. And about that MacBook Air, it's got like 87 hours battery life. Yeah, right. Exactly. Unlike the previous ones where you'd go out to the coffee shop and you'd have to be looking for a, a plug to plug right. it well, in. I knew when I was done at the end of every day when the battery was dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to set a time limit. Yeah. Although if you want to keep writing, then you've got to it's plug frustrating. it in. It's frustrating. Or you got to run home and be like, ah, I got to keep that thought. <laughs> so any tips to writers starting out who may be in your situation that are journalists and want to make the shift to novelists? I mean, we talked about a bit about the economics before, but what else can you recommend? I think the most important thing, and I always say this, there's two things I recommend to writers. One is to do the work. Uh, a lot of people like just think about, oh, I'd love to write a book someday. It's like, that doesn't get you anywhere. I mean, that's great, but you know, you got you to gotta sit down, you got to write, and you got to do it regularly. Some people say write every day. I think it helps. But it's a lot like exercise, I think, where sometimes you got you got to take a break or a rest day here and there. And there's a lot of stuff that you do in writing that's not like actually sitting at the keyboard. Like I like to take walks during the day because it gives me a chance to like change my context and think about things. So I think that's important. So number one is do the work. Number two, in I'm sort of fond of saying like there's no, there's no magic to it, right? A lot of people think like, oh, I will come up with the perfect setup and the perfect, you know, tools and everything. And I'll sit down and the words will pour out of me. And the answer is no, it doesn't work like that. It's about like really showing up and doing it and i think the harder you know you, you work hard at it you produce something and i'm going to be honest like a lot of times that first thing you write may not work uh or it may work with some caveats when i you know dealt with my agent for the first time i worked back and forth with him for several years before he signed me and before he was willing to take that first novel out so 
I think for me, it's about being, you know, persevering and, and continuing to work on it, even though you're going to deal with a lot of rejection, you're going to deal with a lot of going back and working again, uh, and reworking stuff that you've done before. Uh, staying with it is the, is the most important thing. Like it's, it's the thing that's going to make the difference in the end. And also you wrote several novels before that first one that was published, right? Yeah, I wrote two and a half novels out of a trilogy that I was sort of working on when I was in my early 20s, I think, and ended up shelving all of it when I realized that first book uh, wasn't going to take off and there was no point in finishing the next two. And then it was a few years before I sort of got back on the horse and was like, you know what, I'm going to make a real go of this and I'm going to like sit down and finish a book, you know, and and send it out and like keep working on it until it until it makes it or until I until I die trying. Okay. Dan, what are you reading today that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Actually, just finished uh, the first book in a spy series called uh, Slow Horses by Mick Herron, which is, uh, I think, fairly popular. It's been around for about 10 years, uh, and there's several books in this series. But I And I believe that Apple is actually making a TV show out of it, which is why I picked it up, uh, and it was recommended by my friend Anthony Johnson, who's an who's a espionage writer as well. And so I, I really enjoyed that. It's a little bit off-kilter for a spy book, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and like I said, there's like several books in that series. So always fun to sort of go down a, a rabbit hole and enjoy three or four different books. Okay, Dan Morin, thanks for joining us. We'll have links in the show notes to your website and to your books. Thank you so much. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. <laughs>